Let's pray. Father, what a powerful reminder that you are everywhere. Lord, you're with Jonah and the whale here today, and you're with us no matter what we're going through this morning. So I pray, Father, that you would remind people of your powerful presence, Lord, this morning. Show them your glory. Show them how amazing you are, just as we've been singing about and celebrating. Show them that now through the teaching of your word. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are in bondage right now. Maybe they're in bondage to sin or the devil or both. Lord, I pray that um, the Son would set them free today. Lord, your word says if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So I pray for that experience of true freedom in Christ, that they would not just feel it, but they would know it deep down in their hearts, that they can be free from addiction, from bondage, from sin and its consequences to a beautiful relationship with you, we pray. So Father, we commit the rest of this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple things as we continue in worship. Uh, first of all, special welcome to those on the second floor looking down on us. We love you guys up there. And I love picking on balcony people because it is so bright up here. The farther you sit back, I can't see what's going on. You could be making faces at me right now, balcony people. I have no idea. Maybe you are. Maybe that's what you, why you sit up there. So some of you are nodding, maybe. Okay. But just special welcome to you. Uh, and then today is a, a special Sunday in that it's Farmer's Blessing Sunday. And so if you are a farmer, would you stand and remain standing? Don't be shy. Whether full-time or part-time or semi-retired, whatever that means. All right. Now stay standing. Go ahead and look around and see who is represented here. Now, if you are part of a farmer family, would their families please stand as well? Because you are in this just as much as they are. If not more, maybe you worry more. And then if your livelihood depends on farming in some way, you are connected to the farming industry in some way for your livelihood, would you please stand too? Maybe I can get a few more to stand. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Go ahead and look around one more time. Don't sit down yet. I want to share just a few things and we'll pray for you, okay? So I won't embarrass you too much. Uh, first thing is, I think as a farmer, you have a special connection with the Lord in that you can understand what the Bible is teaching easier than the average person. Because if you read scripture, Old Testament and New, there's a lot of farming and agricultural imagery, isn't there? Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Or Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gives the growth? God. So you have a special connection to understand the word of God. The second thing I want to say to farmers is, you're all a little crazy. And I mean that in a good way. But here's why I think you're a little crazy, because you can work really hard, which you do. You can plan as best as you can plan and use all the technology and help you can get. But at the end of the day, who gives the growth? God. Can you control the weather, farmers? Maybe you stress out when you look at the 10-day forecast, what's going to happen. I find a lot of parallels in my line of work, too. I can work as hard as I want to, but God has to give the growth. The third thing I want to say to farmers is because of that, I believe farming is a calling. How many of you would say you've been called by God to do this? I think for many of you, it's more than a paycheck. I remember there was a guy in my last congregation in his 20s. He was an engineer, mechanical engineer. Great job with benefits. Do you know what benefits are, farmers? <laughs> he had benefits, and he left that security of that job 
to farm full-time in his 20s. And his family thought, he's nuts. I thought he's a little nuts. And I sat down with him and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, God has called me to farm. Your farming is a calling. So if you're around a farmer right now, would you just place a hand on them? You can stand with them. And if you want to stand up and go pray for someone specifically and go lay hands on someone you know specifically, you can go ahead and stand up and do that right now. And then would you just reach out a hand towards someone standing just to represent that we're all in this together as a church family, as a community. We want to pray for you all. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for our farmers here and their families. Thank you for those who make their livelihood in some way connected to farming. There, there are many within our church family, many in our community and county that do so. So we praise you for them. And Father, thank you for your rich calling on their lives, Lord. I pray that as they work hard, that, uh, Lord, they would see results, that you would give the growth, that you would provide exactly what they need and even more so they can be a blessing. Lord, I also pray for your divine protection on them, Lord. May you help their machinery to work. May you help there to be no farming accidents whatsoever this year, Father. Keep them safe and the people around them, we pray. And Lord, I also pray for their hearts as well. I pray that as they worry and get anxious, Lord, that they would trust in you. They would cry out to you and you would answer, that you would show them that your peace transcends all understanding and it's gonna guard their heart and it's gonna guard their mind in Christ Jesus, we pray. So Father, we lift these things up to you and just thank you that you're with them. May you give the growth. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, and actually we're going to start at chapter 1, beginning at verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1, and up to this point we saw in chapter 1 that Jonah has fled the presence of the Lord, which is kind of a funny idea because you cannot flee the presence of the Lord like we just read about, but he's tried to flee and God sent a storm to wake him up against their ship and their crew, and the sailors eventually throw Jonah into the sea because Jonah told him to do so. And the sea grows calm, the storm grows calm. And then in verse 17, it says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now before I keep going, I want to talk about something real quick. Some of you may be a skeptic of Scripture or may know someone who is. I mean, this is a miracle. This is amazing that a fish would come and swallow Jonah, and he would be preserved in this slimy, grubby, hot Stinky fish, dark fish for that amount of time. I mean, we as a staff thought about opening some sardines or tuna cans and just passing them around just to get the smell right in here today. <laughs> Make us feel like we're really there, but that's probably what he smelled. But this is a miracle, so how do we come to grips with it? Well, in the book nook, there's a great book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal Prophet. I highly recommend on Jonah. And he talks about this in response to that very briefly. He says, um, how you respond to this miracle depends on how you read the rest of the Bible. If you accept the exi existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, then there is nothing difficult about reading Jonah literally. Yes, many people believe that all miracles are impossible, but that skepticism is just that, a belief that cannot be proven. So in other words, just as people say, well, you can't prove that miracles happen, you also can't prove that they don't happen. 
We can't prove that in a lab. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, too, that what's remarkable about this text is that the writer just mentions this fish very quickly. It's mentioned in 117, and then it's going to show up in 210 when the fish just pukes out Jonah, basically. (laughs) And that's remarkable because if I was writing the Bible, I'd be a lot more elaborate, like this great grubby fish came and looked at Jonah face to face, and then its mouth gobbled him up. You know, I'd I'd use all these crazy details. But the the writer of the, the Old Testament doesn't do that. It's just very simple, very plain, which leads me to believe it actually happened. And then the best reason I would say that this actually happened is in the New Testament, Jesus mentions the story. He mentions that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Would you stand with me for the reading of the rest of God's word? We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1 and following. And I want you to pay attention to the theme of confession. Today we're looking at confession, specifically how it's connected to God's grace. Pay attention as we read this, how confession works. So it says in verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. By the way, isn't it amazing that you can pray anywhere and God hears you? I mean, some of you need to hear this morning that God hears you. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, some of you feel like you're inside a fish. But God hears you. He knows. He's going to answer your prayer request. He cares. And then in verse 2, it says, Jonah said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, or Sheol, like some translations say, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. You may be seated. So I mentioned we're going to look at the theme of confession. We're going to look at, first of all, what it is, and then some characteristics of it, and then how it's connected to grace, because this series is all about grace. So let's look at, first of all, what it is. And before we talk about confession, whenever you hear that word confession, what do you think about? I know for me and some of our staff, when we were processing this, we think about like CSI and like in the criminal law courts, we're trying to get a criminal to confess what they did. Or maybe you think of Roman Catholicism and going to a priest and confessing, and some of you have experience in that. But what is the biblical definition of confession? Let me give you just a simple and quick, easy definition. It says, to confess is to admit your sin and your guilt to God. So read that out loud with me. To confess is to admit your sin and guilt to God. To God. Now, how many of you knew that already? A lot of you probably knew this, and that's okay. 
But the Bible actually gives a little more nuance than this because if you study that word confession in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, you start to see that it's not just about confessing your sin, but that same word is used to describe confessing that God is God, that God is awesome and amazing and incredible and powerful and strong. So there's really kind of two dimensions to confession. You confess your sin and its ugly ugliness and reality, but you also confess that God is amazing at the same time. And then when you get to the New Testament, in the original Greek, that word confession means to say the same thing. Say that with me, to say the same thing. So when you're confessing, you are saying the same thing as God is. You are saying that you agree that this sin that you did is wrong and you're guilty and you're agreeing that God is God and you need his help in his intervention. You are saying the same thing about your reality that God is. That's what confession is. And we all need to confess, biblically speaking, for at least two reasons. Number one, the first reason is if you're going to become a Christian, a follower of God, that's where it starts. So look up on screen at Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth, so there's confess, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, so it's more than just lip service, it's down in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. But then confession is also for believers. So you don't just need it to start your Christian journey, but it's for believers. In 1 John 1, 9, it very famously says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So bottom line is, whether you're not a believer and you're here today, or you are a believer, you need to confess regularly to the Lord. We get to confess as believers. Let's talk about some characteristics of confession that we see in our text. I have four, and I'll go through these quickly. I promise, even though preachers say that in loud time. I promise. <laughs> so characteristic number one is that confession happens most at our lowest points. Confession happens most when we are at our lowest. We see this with Jonah. He is sinking down into the ocean. In fact, we've seen, if you've been reading Jonah carefully, we've seen that word down several times. So in chapter one, verse three, when he runs away from the Lord, he goes down to Joppa to board a ship. Or in chapter one, verse five, in, in some translations it says he goes down into the ship to sleep. And now he's literally sinking down down into the ocean. I mean, the author of Jonah is telling us that if you sin, guess where it leads? Down. If you run away from the Lord, it just, it just leads you on this downward spiral, down and down and down. And that's what's happening to Jonah. He is at his lowest, weakest point in the water, getting ready to drown. And here's what some of the text says on screen. In verse two, it says he's in distress from deep in the realm of the dead. He is calling for help because he knows he's about to die. It says in verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. And what does it say was wrapped around his head? Seaweed. Boy, I hate swimming and even touching seaweed, but he's getting ready, he's getting ready to die, to drown. Verses 6 and 7, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. And then in verse 7, he says, my life was ebbing away. So, I mean, he is at his lowest of his lowest possible point. And I think, I think that's true for us, too. When we confess, sadly, 
it often takes our lowest, weakest, most vulnerable point, doesn't it? How many of you can say amen to that? (laughs) When life is going well, for some reason, we think, oh, life is going well, life's going great. Yes, you may pray and have a relationship with the Lord, but, but it's not the kind of desperation where you have to cling to the Lord, where you need the Lord. You know, when life is going well, it feels like we have this this false sense of security that everything's good, everything's locked into place. But when life is not going well, when we hit the bottom, that's when we start to confess. So I want to say a couple things to you this morning. If if life is not going poorly, excuse me, if life is going poorly for you this morning, and I won't have you raise your hand, but if life is going bad for you, let me encourage you. This is such an opportunity for you to confess to the Lord whether you brought this on yourself or somebody else did, or maybe you're just obeying the Lord and that brought you into a storm, all those are possible. But if you're at a low point, did you realize that you have an opportunity? An opportunity to confess your need for the Lord, to confess that God is God. And let me tell you, when you realize that Jesus is all you have, you realize that Jesus is all you need. But you often don't realize that until you're at a very low point. And then if you're at a very good point today, be warned. Now is your time to confess. Now now is your time to cling to the Lord now before a storm comes in your life and shakes you up and wakes you up. Let's go on to number two and number three together at the same time. These go together, so I want to mention them together. These are two more characteristics of confession we see. Number two, confession happens when we realize our utter sinfulness before God, and then confession happens when we realize our utter helplessness before God to save us. So our sinfulness and our helplessness. Say that with me. Our sinfulness and our helplessness. I know that doesn't sound very positive, but it's actually very encouraging. Jonah is starting to realize this. In verse 4, he says, I have been banished from your sight, from God's sight, as he's sinking down into the depths, he realizes that he does not deserve to be in the presence of the Lord. He has sinned. He needs help. He starts to have some hope, yet I will look again toward your holy temple, but he realizes, man, I need help. I'm a sinner. You know, if I were to ask you this morning a personal question, I love asking personal questions as a pastor. If I were to ask you a personal question, how many of you think you're a sinner. How many of you know you're a sinner? How many of you realize that you're not just bad? You're much worse off than you think, according to the Bible. How many of you know that deep down in your heart? Now, I would guess you may know that theologically up in our head, but oftentimes, I think if we're honest, we can always think of somebody worse than us. Just watch the news. I mean, I just saw there was a mass shooting in New Zealand again, horrible situation. We think, we're not like that person. Or if you look around here at our church, chances are, if you're like me in any way, you play that game of comparison with others and you think, oh, thank goodness, I'm not like that person over there. (laughs) Thank goodness I don't gossip like that person at church. (laughs) Thank goodness I don't raise my kids or discipline them like that person. (laughs) You know, I've realized as a parent, man, you have way more stuff to compare yourself with other people when you have children and parenting. Most of us, if we're really honest deep down, how bad are you really? We're not as bad as we think. 
But scripture is clear that we are bad. We are sinners. Just like Jonah has been banished from God's sight, so we have been banished from his sight. The New Testament says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of his glory. All. And then it gets really personal and to the heart in Jeremiah 17. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So the very core of our being, the very thing that drives us as a person, Scripture says is deceitful. Who can understand it? And I think this makes a lot of sense because have you ever done something good, but you did it for the wrong motivation? Maybe to be seen, maybe to look good, maybe because you don't want people to think you're a bad person. I mean, that's not the best motivation to do good things. That's like what the Pharisees did. We are in desperate need of help. We are utterly sinful and utterly helpless. We're reading a book right now as a staff called uh, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert? And I love his chapter on sin because he says a lot of us think sin is like an unpaid parking ticket. You ever got a parking ticket? Do you get those in Burn or Adams County, parking tickets? (laughs) Well, if you get a parking ticket, what's your reaction? This is annoying. I don't deserve this. Come on. It's not really my fault. The parking space. (laughs) That's what we often think about sin. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not my fault. He goes on to say that in the second floor of the National Museum of Natural History in D.C. is the world's largest, flawless, spherical quartz. I think I said that right. (laughs) It's over 100 pounds. 13 inches in diameter. I mean, it's priceless. He says a lot of us think we're kind of like that quartz. We're clean, we're pure, we're not that bad. And if we do get bad or do get some sin on us, we just kind of wipe it away, polish it away. But that's not what the Bible says about our sin. The Bible says that sin is not just on us, but it's in us. To the very core of our being, the heart is deceitful beyond all understanding, the Bible says. And then if you get to the New Testament, it really shows how helpless we are to save ourselves from our sin before a holy God. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sin. Dead. I mean, what can dead people do? Nothing. The New Testament Greek word for dead, you know what it means? Dead. (laughs) I know you were looking for something profound there, but (laughs) I just want to get that clear. We can do nothing. Paul goes on to say the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's impossible. Just like Jonah is sinking down into the depths, he needed God's intervention to save him, so we need God's intervention to save us. Just like the Ninevites will need it in chapter 3, so we do as well. Jonah's story is our story. Without Christ, That is the image of our sin. We are sinking down and down and down, and we are going to drown in our sin unless God intervenes and sends something or someone to save us, which takes me to the fourth characteristic. Characteristic number four, confession happens when we realize our utter need for our great God to rescue us. We need to realize our utter need for our great God to rescue us to rescue us. So we've realized our utter sinfulness and our utter helplessness and now our utter need. I mean, these could all be combined into one, honestly. But we have to realize how much we need the Lord. 
And Jonah is starting to realize this, finally. He wasn't praying on the ship. He wasn't praying when the storm was coming. It took him at his lowest point when he's about to drown to realize he needs help. God intervened to wake him up, and God swallowed him in safety with a whale. And if you and I want to be saved from God's wrath, from sin, if you and I want to have a relationship with God, we have to be swallowed in safety. I love that image from Jonah. We have to know God's provision, his costly, yet his gracious provision. It's both costly and gracious. In fact, if you look at your text, in verses 4 and 7, Jonah mentions while he's about to drown, I'm going to look again towards your holy temple in verse 4. Verse 7, and my prayer rose to you towards your holy temple. So he's having some hope. He realizes that God is saving him. There's grace. But he also realizes, too, that there's a cost to this. Because if he is a sinner, is going to be in the presence of a holy God in whom there is no sin, whom is without sin. God is going to have to provide for him. You know, last week I mentioned a lot of connections to Christ in chapter 1. Well, there's one big connection here in chapter 2 to Christ. Many biblical scholars have noticed this. That just as Jonah was swallowed in safety by the fish, he was in refuge and in safety from the storm and from the waves. He was safe in the whale, in the fish. So we too, if we confess our need to God, he will swallow us in safety. Instead of being in a whale, we'll be in Christ, which is a hundred times better than a whale. We'll be swallowed in safety and saved from the storm of God's wrath. I mean, the Bible says all throughout in the New Testament, we are in Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are swallowed in safety because of Christ. God provided a costly yet gracious provision, not in a fish for us, but in a whale. I mean, excuse me, in Christ. I'm getting confused here. In Christ. (laughs) And it was costly because it took the death of the second member of the Trinity to die for us. Yet it was gracious because we didn't deserve it. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And the key this morning, this is the key, the way that you receive this provision is you have to confess. And the key to confession, if we can go even deeper, is what? Grace. This series is all about grace. If we're going to receive God's costly yet gracious provision, we have to confess our need, our sinfulness, our helplessness, our need for God. I mean, this is the starting point for some of you who are not believers this morning or if you're not sure. The way you become a Christian is not by working harder or filling out a form or presenting a resume. It's by confessing how needy you are, that you are desperate for help, that you're going to drown unless God intervenes. But the same is also true for believers. We never get over our neediness for God. We never get over our need to confess You know, if I were to take a poll here this morning, how many of you like to admit how helpless you are and how sinful you are and how much you need help? None of us do. Admitting is hard for us here in Adams County, and it's hard everywhere. I hear this all the time in the hallway. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Or if you get a more honest answer, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy, busy, busy. We need to admit our need for help from others, and also, most of all, from the Lord regularly. I mean, it is a joy. It is a great privilege for us to confess our sin to the Lord. 
regularly. regularly. That is part of the rhythm of our relationship with God is confessing just how much we need the Lord and our sin before him in receiving his grace. So the key to all of this, if we're going to be people that confess spiritually mature, grace has to be the center of our identity. I mean, get this, when we confess, he forgives us. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. We should want to confess, shouldn't we? We get to confess. We should own our stuff as believers. You know, I was thinking how this parallels to life. If you ever want to be good at something in life, like your job or a sport or a musician, you have to go through a period where you show your warts and flaws and you have somebody intervene and help you. You have to kind of confess your weaknesses, so to speak. I remember when I was in preaching class in seminary, I'd, I'd be in this little dark room during class with eight other students and a professor, and they'd have these criti- criticism sheets. And so as I'm preaching, nobody is looking at me. They're just writing stuff down, and I'm thinking, what on earth did I just say? <laughs> and then afterwards, the professor's like, okay, let's affirm Rick for like two minutes, and then let's, let's see what we can learn from Rick, which basically means let's shoot him down for the next 25 minutes so that he never wants to preach again in his life. <laughs> And so you leave that thinking, how, I should never preach again. <laughs> but it was so good for me to see what I needed to work on. Well, the same is true spiritually. When God shows you what you need to confess, what a blessing that is. Because you receive his grace, you're covered, and you can start fresh and anew in him. We're going to transition to a time of communion. And I want to invite the ushers forward. They're going to start passing out the elements And just by way of reminder that uh, communion here at First Missionary is open to anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a regular attender. You don't have to be a member. But if Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and your treasure, then you are good to go. But if he is not that, or if you can't say that confidently, we encourage you just to watch what's going on. Just let the plate pass and nobody's keeping a list or checking it twice on who's taking it or not. But that would really honor us if you would just let it pass. And we're so glad you're here. So they're going to come forward, the ushers, and they're going to start distributing the elements. And while they're doing that, I'm going to briefly remind us what we're doing here this morning. So it says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in a moment, we're going to eat the bread together. So don't partake yet. We're going to do it together. And when we do so, we are encouraged to remember what Christ did for us. How his body was broken and beaten and battered. How the nails went through his hands and feet. How Christ's body was given in your place as the sacrifice for your sin. And then it goes on to say in scripture that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So in a moment, we're going to take the cup together as well. And when we do so, it reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed. Not just his body was broken, but that we needed the the shed blood of Jesus Christ to be forgiven of sin. Because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
We see that all through the Old Testament when God sacrificed, God had animal sacrifices, but it was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs does nothing really, but only the blood of the ultimate lamb can forgive sins. So in a moment when we drink the cup, we're going to remember his blood. And then it says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That simply means we have to take this so seriously as believers. We don't take it for granted. We honor the Lord when we remember what he did for us and we celebrate that and are thankful for that. But we don't do this jokingly or in a flippant manner. And then in verse 28, it says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So once the ushers are done passing out the elements, I'm gonna give you about a minute of silence just to think and examine yourself and to confess your sin to the Lord. Remember, if we confess our sins to the Lord, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, any sin you've done and are doing and will do, he will cleanse you from that. All because of the blood of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So I encourage you during this time not to just wallow in your sin, but confess it to the Lord. And then also confess that God is so great that he would do this for us. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And let's just take a minute of silence to confess. Father, we thank you for the tremendous gift of confession. Lord, we confess that without Christ, we are like Jonah sinking down. We confess that without Christ, we are drowning in our sin. And yet we also confess like Jonah that salvation is from the Lord. It is he who gave us the ultimate provision we need, not in a fish, but in Christ. Lord, I pray that confession would be just a regular part of who we are, that we would not dread it, but we would say we get to confess. We get to come clean and it is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because his body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross in our place. So Lord, I pray that here at FMC, that our FMCers would be people who regularly confess and own it, Father, all because of the blood of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we're gonna take of the bread in just a second. Jesus said that this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat of the bread together.
And then Jesus also said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. And then scripture says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Would you stand with us for our closing song?